your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Malachi chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. This morning it is my privilege to preach my first ever sermon on tithing. All right. Yes, and uh, 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 it is your privilege today to hear my first ever sermon on tithing. Let us let us read. Uh, let us read um, out of Malachi, one of the more famous passages when it comes to the practice of tithing. Maybe the landmark, most famous passage, most used would be Malachi chapter three, verses ten. Through 12. And I want to ask a question coming out of this reading. Do blessings come from tithe? Do blessings come from the practice of tithing? Let us read. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for your Lord will be such a delight, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the word of the Lord. So, do blessings come from tithe? Do you know what tithe do you know what tithe is? Is is there anybody that doesn't know what tithe is? Tithe comes from a Hebrew word that means a tenth part. It's come to mean ten percent. Ten percent of our income to the church as an act of worship, and it's rooted in Old Testament principles. So when we talk about tithe, we're talking about is the, is the practice of giving ten percent. Ten percent. So, do blessings come from those who give ten percent of their income to the church? I just I want to ask another question. That's really at first not really related to this at all. I want to know if you've ever heard a teenager say a dumb thing. Have you ever heard a teenager say a dumb thing? Have you ever been a teenager and said a dumb thing, right? Oh, man. So I'm going to tell on myself here. The year, when was the year? Oh, no. The year was 2002. Okay, I was a, I just completed my freshman year. Justin and I just completed our freshman year at Olivet Nazarene University, and I came home to southern Indiana. We live 30 minutes north of Kentucky. And uh, so I drove, oh, about three and a half, four hours southeast of Olivet and landed in North Vernon, Indiana, and I was staying at mom and dad's house for, uh, for the summer. And something had happened Ever since I'd gone to college now for nine months, I've become a, a, a big boy. And uh, I thought I was more adult than what I actually actually was. And so I, I came home, and Mom had scheduled for me to have reconstructive foot surgery on my left foot. And I went through that procedure and had that, or sorry, on my right foot, had that 
done and uh, was on crutches for the rest of the summer. Between crutches and a wheelchair. I was in a wheelchair for a little bit. Between crutches and a wheelchair for the rest of my first year out of college, for the rest of that summer, I was constricted. Uh, And my best friend, uh, Dane, was also home, just recently discharged from the Army uh, because of a bum knee. And uh, he was on crutches. And so it was just a delight, me and my best friend just crutching around town, uh, and uh, one night we decided to go to Walmart late at night, and we, we were able to get in the disability power wheelchairs because we were disabled. So at, uh, at 18 years old, here we are cranking around Walmart because there's nothing else to do in southeastern Indiana at 1130 at night than to crank around Walmart and powerize wheelchair. Um, and Dane, uh, unbeknownst to me, I mean, couldn't see this coming. Dane happened to meet a girl out of all that. Uh, yeah, he, well, I won't tell you how that happened because it makes him sound super creepy. But he, <laughs> he got a date out of that, and he asked me, he asked me to go on a double date with this, just to crutch around with, uh, with his uh, date. And I, I really wanted to do it, so I, I, I came home, and I told Dad about my plans. I said, yeah, Dad, I'm going to go out and go on a date with, with Dane. We're going to crutch around town together. And uh, Dad said, no. He drew a line for some reason. He said, no, I think it had something to do with the time of night and that there was church the next day. And so he said, no, you can't do that. And I got really angry with my dad, and I, and I became emboldened with my new sense of freedom. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I had a brand new right foot, thanks to him and mom's insurance. I, was, uh, I, don't, I didn't have a job, so uh, the car I was driving was his car. And uh, because I didn't have a job, the clothes I was wearing were really his clothes. And uh, the bedroom I slept across, which was directly across from the room, was really his bed, uh, the, his TV in my bedroom. There really not one thing that I had on me that really belonged to me. Everything from my foot to my school to the bed I slept in was all my dad's. But here, I just got to set this up. Context is my number one. I got to tell you, all right? I got to tell you the story so you understand it. So I crutch. This is a true story. I crutch, June 2002. I crutch back to my dad's bedroom. And uh, it was Sunday afternoon. The date was set for the next Saturday night. And dad had just got done preaching. Uh, I have since learned that preachers are really tired in the afternoon. I did not realize that when I was 19. And so my dad was really tired, and he was laying in bed, and I thought it would be a great time to pick up this argument on why I should be allowed to go on this double date the next Saturday. I crutched back to his bedroom. I propped myself up on his doorframe, and we're arguing at this point. Now we're yelling uh, on why I can't go. And so I dropped this line. I said, Dad... That's fine. I'll just go down to Monica's house. Monica was Dane's mom. I said, I'll just go down to Monica's house. She can take better care of me than you can. Have you ever heard a teenager say a dumb thing? <laughs> My, that's a dumb thing. Here's a kid who has a right foot because of his parents, who has a car because of his parents, who has an education because of his parents, who has a bed to sleep in because of his parents. Here was a frustrated and ungrateful child, completely unaware of the blessings of his father. Have you ever heard? <laughs> Maybe I'll, hey, you know what? I'll just preach this message on tithing again. We'll just preach it again. Use this. Okay. 
a frustrated and ungrateful child completely unaware of the blessings of his father. (laughs) My dad said some words that I can't really share with you, but it was truth. My dad spoke truth to me this morning. The words that we read out of Malachi come right out of the context of God speaking some truth to Israel. We didn't read those, but if you wanted to read the truth of God's very direct words, they're in verses 8 and 9. I believe God calls them cheaters. You have cheated me, God says to the Israelites in Malachi, just speaking some harsh truth to them, to children who had completely forgotten that they were children of God and that God owns the very resources in which they possessed. These were children completely unaware of the blessings of the Father. And so, God comes to them and tries to draw them back into relationship by shining light on just how distant they have been. These people have grown uh, indifferent to God. I like what a commentator says. The, the relationship with God had grown cold and it showed in their practices of worship. And the commentator writes about their indifference like this. Their indifference was an outward and inward sign. Sorry, an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual disgrace. I just want to read that one more time. The indifference shown in worship of these people who had forgotten that they are children of God and that the blessings of God were upon them, they, they begin to act with an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual disgrace. Malachi writes about their practices in the very first chapter of Malachi. Their practices of indifference was bringing the worst animal in their flock to God's altar. And if you're willing to bring the worst of what you own to God's altar, it's obvious that something is not right with your heart. They weren't giving God their best. They were giving God their worst. In fact, even worse than that, they lived as if God was not real. As if the practices of worship didn't really make a difference. They were apathetic. They were mundane. As if going to church on Saturday or going to synagogue on Saturday, as was their practice, didn't really make a difference. It didn't really matter. They lived as if God was not real and as if they were not unique. Hey, Rex, there's a good word right here. They lived as if God was not owner and as if they were not children of God. Hmm. They lived as if God was not real and as if they were not unique. You know you are unique, right? Don't ever, Caleb, don't ever get into the pattern to think that you're not special. Brother, you are very, very special. What happened in Malachi where people began to think that they were just normal and that God was just another device created for therapeutic deism, somewhere to go to feel good, but that he wasn't actually real and that they weren't actually special. What happened with people that didn't believe that God was real or believe that they were special? They began to live as if they didn't live in God's house. As if God wasn't their father. As if they weren't their children. Their apathetic attitudes begin to rob God of what was God's. They begin to bring the worst to him. And in doing that, in robbing God 
of what was God's, they forfeited even a greater blessing, the blessing of being called child, the blessing of having the Lord's promises poured out over them. So let me ask a very direct question this morning. Was it the practice of not tithing that caused Israel to cease from blessing? Was it the practice of not tithing that caused them not to have a blessing? I don't know. I think I'm inclined to say no. I think I'm inclined to say no because a heart that does not know their identity as beloved children of God does not know that all of God's resources are theirs. Do you remember that passage of Scripture that we read from Luke chapter 12, verse 32 last week? Where Jesus looks at the disciples and says, Little flock, don't you know? God is blessed to give you the keys to the kingdom. It's all yours. (laughs) A heart that does not know the identity as beloved children can't possibly grasp that all of what is God's is yours. A heart that instead gives from the very worst because they're afraid to give of the very best. A heart that clings to ownership because they're afraid of release. A heart that clings to possessions and is fearful of a loss of wealth, well, it's impossible to receive. Another word for receive is grace. A heart that clings to possessions and ownerships and works out of fear, it's impossible for you to live in grace. It's impossible for you to live as a child of God that swims in grace. Your heart is too full of fear to receive the freedom that Mark prayed about. To receive the freedom and openness provided by relationship with God. So, why do we tithe then? Why are there some people in this congregation that gives 10% of their income to the church? Do you tithe out of guilt? Do you tithe out of obligation? Do you tithe to receive blessing? I've heard many stories about how tithing increases God's blessing and income in your life. Is that, and I don't doubt that, actually. I think God blesses those that live sacrificially. But is tithe a for, formula? You tithe, and God multiplies your paycheck. Do you tithe in order to be blessed? You know, I'll tell you this with confidence. Tithe is not transactional. It's not transactional. You give 10%, God will give you 100% more. (laughs) Or you give 10%, God will double it. He'll give you 20% back. I, I can tell you it's not transactional. And so if you hear this morning a word that says you're going to, if you give money, God's going to bless you more. I would ask that you would ask me to leave. Because <laughs> tithe is not transactional. The practice of tithing instead reflects lives caught up. Now, now listen, this is essential. This is essential, Shelley. The practice of tithing reflects lives caught up in the love and dance of a relationship with the beloved, with God. Father and child united. What was happening in Malachi? 
the father looks down to children who didn't know they were children. And so they walked into worship on Saturday and acted as if they were not children. They had no idea that all of the land was theirs. They had no idea that they could ask for absolutely anything. They kept walking through as if it just didn't matter and as if God wasn't real. They were far from united. They were, uh, what is that when you're not united? They were disjointed. I would point our attention to a a story that's familiar to us. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. It's the story of Cain and Abel. And what we see in Cain and Abel is a classic story of not knowing to whom they belong. They were working in their fields. They were farmers. And on the day that it came to offer the offering, Cain looked for whatever he could find. He went to the garage and he just scrounged up whatever he could get. He didn't really care too much about it. He just gave because he had to give. And so he brings his obligatory offering to the table. And beside him is his brother Abel, who at the chance to give back to God, goes and finds the first the very firstborn of his flock. He finds the finest sheep he can find. And he brings the very best unto the table. And so sitting at the table that day was an offering that was an obligation and an offering that was out of generosity. Well, God looks down upon the heart and realizes that Abel, Abel was giving out of a heart that was completely in love with God knowing that his very breath is a breath of God and his very resources is out of the resources that God owns. And that all of this has gotten him so in tune and in step with the love of the Father that he freely gives as if it was Christmas Day. As if giving back to God was like gifts we give at Christmas. He was excited. He didn't want to go, he didn't want to go, he didn't want to go shop at Dollar General when he could shop at like Target, right? I don't know. I don't know. That was off the top of my head in a horrible analogy. Cain gave out a transaction. Abel, out of generosity. Cain, out of legalism. Abel, out of love. Do you know how the story ends? Do you know how the story ends? Hi, kids, come on in. We're telling the story of Cain and Abel. So any one of you, Anya, do you know how Cain and Abel, do you know how that story ends? How does that story end? See, she knows. Do you know how that story ends? How does that story end? Cain kills Abel and God curses the ground for the murder. Why does Cain kill Abel? Because jealousy festers in a heart that does not have love. Jealousy and anger and hatred and greed, they fester in hearts that do not know they belong to the love of the Father. So I want to propose this in my first and maybe most horrible sermon ever preached on tithing. Blessings don't come from tithing. One more time. Blessings don't come from tithing. Blessings instead come from hearts conformed to the identity of our Father. 
hearts that are desperate for relationship with God and wholly surrendered to God's will. Think about the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is just freely pouring out blessings. Whom does Jesus say is blessed? Those who tithe? He doesn't actually mention that one. He mentions and said, for the poor, for those who mourn, and those who are humble, and those who hunger and thirst for justice, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, those persecuted for doing right. I would argue that blessings come from obedience. Blessings come from hearts who understand to whom they belong. And tithing, you're not off the hook yet. Tithing is a right practice for disciples of Jesus Christ. But tithing cannot come because you're going to get blessed for it. I just would rather you not give to the church if you think that you're going to be blessed more if you tithe. There's other organizations to give to. I would rather you tithe if tithing is rooted to a deep principle of worship. Like Abel out in the farm, knowing that, oh boy, God has blessed me with this occupation, and God has blessed me with this family, and God has blessed me with this life, and God has blessed me with this breath. All that I have, Psalm 24, 1, all that is created and all that is made is yours. Father, what would you like? I would argue that blessings come from obedience. Hearts wrapped up into the dance and love of the Father and tithing. Tithing is a natural outflow of worship. So why? Why do people tithe? Well, Emily, that's a good question. That's a good question. I would say that people tithe for the same reason they bake a casserole dish for someone who's been sick. It's a response out of love. Think about that. Why in the world would someone give 10% of their income to an organization they believe is ran by God, the church? Why would someone do that? I say it's for the same reason, Dennis, that people show up and bake casserole dishes for when we do not feel well. It's a response out of a heart that's wrapped in love. And I would say that blessings apply to far more than tithing. Blessings apply to that heart and life that has lived in step with the Father's generosity. We tithe because we become like the Father, generous, understanding that we are children in his household. And a generous relationship begins. A selfless, generous life of love to our family, to our neighbors, to our friends, and to our co-workers. I would say that tithing is a worshipful practice that recognizes who is the owner and to whose house we belong. And a heart that knows and professes that God is Father and that we are child is a heart that will be transformed into a generous type of living that nothing is off limits. A generosity to your giving will happen, but also a generosity to your time and to your relationships. So not just money, but a generous life of time, of relationships and money. So here's just a few things of thought. How are you? How are you with giving of your time? In service? 
of giving of your time in patience, of giving of your time in solitude, of giving of your time in rest. Does your heart reflect the patterns of the Father? Does your time and how you're generous with your time, does it reflect the heart of the Father? Don't you know to whom you belong? Don't you know that you are his child? Don't you know that God has infinite amount of time? There's nothing that has to get done today. Whoa. Could you imagine living like that? With the type of patience that says my father owns all of time, both, both past time and future time. And my heart lives generous with time because my father owns time. Nothing has to get done today. I'll be patient with my father's time. How about giving ourselves in relationships? How are you with the relationships you have with your neighbors? How are you? What's your neighbor's names? How are you with your generosity with how you treat your neighbor, the stranger, the poor, your spouse, (laughs) your children, your siblings? I don't know why I put this one last. It's awkward. Enemies. How are you? How are you with your relationships with your enemies? Do they reflect the heart of Jesus and Jesus' enemies? I, I would just say that blessings, if you want a formula for blessings, live like the Father. It's all yours. It's all yours. Give your heart unto the Father and a heart that is overflowing with blessings will ensue. So last but not least, I believe if we give our heart to the Father and we live like children, that we'll be generous with our time, with relationships, and with our resources. So, how does the Father's generosity reflect in the patterns of your giving? The question, mind you, shouldn't be, how much are you giving? It should not be that. It should be, with whom are you in love? With whom are you in love? Have you asked yourself that day, today? Are you in love with your possessions? Are you in love with the money that you earn? Are you in love with the fear that grips your heart that you live in service to it? Are you in love with yourself? Let me ask another question. Are you living? Are you living as a child of God within God's house and God's possessions? Is God... Your owner, are you God's child? <laughs> what would be possible? Just throw this out there in the silence of the sanctuary. What would be possible for the people of God if we lived as stewards in response to our Father's generosity? I don't think I answered really good the question from Malachi. 
is blessing because the Israelites came and tithed and so God opened the floodgates of heaven? No, I think that blessing came when the Israelites learned they need to live in relationship with God and tithing was a part of that relationship of professing what was who owned what, who was the father and who was the child. The Israelites were doing far, far more than just not tithing. They were living as if they were not children of God. Your life will not be blessed until you learn to live as a child of God. And then you will realize that you are worth far more than your tax income will tell you at the end of the year. You're worth far more than what your occupation will tell about you. You're worth an endless amount because God owns it all and God is creator of you. And so for the Israelites, for anyone that would ever preach this passage and simply say, this is reason why you have to give 10% and now you'll get blessed. No, I think God wants so much more than your money.